The Saturday panel on Off The Ball. It's been a big year for the game of golf and this week we've got a special Saturday panel coming your way. We'll be discussing the 2023 Open Championship at Royal Liverpool with some very special guests. It's with thanks to the all-new Renault Austral E-Tech Full Hybrid with 200 horsepower and up to 1,100 kilometres range. Listen to the Saturday panel from 1pm on the brand new Off The Ball app. This is News Talk. And you're welcome back to Off The Ball here on News Talk for your Saturday afternoon. John Duggan with you through until five. And over the next hour, we're going to talk golf. The Saturday panel brought to you this week with thanks to the all-new Renault Austral E-Tech Full Hybrid with 200 horsepower and up to 1,100 kilometre range. So the Open Championship is the oldest major in golf being held this year just across the RSC at Hoylake on the Royal Liverpool Golf Club. And the leaderboard looks like this at the moment in the search for the car jug. Brian Harmon, 10 under par from the United States, tees off at half three. John Ram having some round. Seven under par. He's now five under for the tournament through 16 holes in a tie for second with Tommy Fleetwood. We've got Nikolai Hoygo, a four under par with Sepp Straka. Rory McIlroy has made two birdies in his first three holes to move to three under par. Patrick Harrington is five over. And we're delighted to have in studio um, veteran open performer Des Smith and European Tour winner eight times and the legendary golf rider Dermot Elise. Des and Dermot, how are we both getting on? Very well, thank you, John. Good, thank you, John. Yeah, yeah, great to see you both. You've known each other a long time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably since the early 70s. Would that be right? Yeah, that'd be right, Dermot. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah you, Mullingar Scratch Cup and things like that in West of Ireland, I would have seen Des initially. And then, obviously, uh, he turned pro. What, 73 you turned pro? Yeah, started in 74. 74, yeah. So... Yeah, I'd be picking up on his career through the 70s. And, uh, yeah, the Open was obviously a, a part of that. Um, funny, we were talking about 82 when Des uh, finished fourth at Troon. And uh, I was remember being hugely excited on the Sunday, uh, believing that uh, I was going to be writing about an Irish Open winner later that day, you know, and uh, it was a wonderful experience, really, you know, to have somebody right up there. And Ted uh, had been playing very well at the time. I mean, you were already a Ryder Cup player twice yeah. by that stage. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you can, you, you've you obviously better memories of it. <laughs> you, ne- you nearly won the Open, Des. I nearly won the Open. I nearly did a lot of things, John. <laughs> no, no, Dermot's right, you know, and uh, I'm happy to say I didn't choke, John. I made a bad decision, though. I, I, I can recall it. Would you like me to recall? Of course, oh, yeah, and for listeners as well, yeah. Yeah, um, um, I was down the back nine, uh, I'd birdied 11, and I'd hit it down 12, and I remember looking up at the scoreboard. As I was walking off the 12 tee, there was a scoreboard on the right, which, which the spectators could see from the 11th and 12th. And, and I looked up and uh, Nicky Price was about, I think he was seven under par. And then Peter Oosterhouse was like five under par. And Des Smith and Tom Watson were four under par. And I remember turning to my caddy and saying, right, I mightn't get this chance again. Um, I'm, I'm going for my shots. Worst decision I ever made when people say to me, "Could you? Would you like to change something?" And I'd say, "No, I've had a great career. I loved it." But if I could have that 
moment again it wasn't the right decision because the back nine that day was a stiff wind from the northwest, something like what blew the last couple of days at, at uh, Hoylake. And all the holes on the run in from 13 in were very difficult holes. And if he had had a smarter brain at the time, I think I've improved since then, um, I would have played centre green. But I started to go for flags. And of course, the old story, I short-sided myself twice, I made two bogeys. I cut a long story short, I finished two under par and four under won the tournament. Tom Watson won it. Tom Watson won it. Uh, because Nick Price ran into trouble on 15, made a double bogey and, and flittered a shot or two away and he finished second uh, and Peter Oosterhouse was third and I tied fourth. But only two shots back. So it was... A, bittersweet. It was bittersweet. Yeah. I didn't choke. I didn't play bad shots. I didn't miss putts. I made a bad decision and put myself in bad places and if I could do it again because I was playing well and I could have put it in the middle of the greens but I was I was shooting at the flag it was the wrong decision Is it a tournament you love? I love it I've I've enjoyed every time I played in it good and bad I've had some good tournaments I've missed the cut numerous times but I really enjoyed the whole experience Yeah Your memories of that is it's fascinating now Now that I think of it because I remember Watson's uh, winner's press conference afterwards and I remember we asked him um, what winning the Open was all about, you know, I mean, was it about not choking and was it about, and he said, look, it's none of those things, it's about decision making. Hmm. And fully enough, he needed a par on the last he reckoned to get into a playoff as it happened he won it but uh, he said I can't be right here on 18 because of the bunker and he said if I'm in that bunker I've no chance of getting up and down so he made a decision that on the 18th he was going to hit a wedge for the centre of the green and depend hope for a 20 footer 25 footer for a closing party which might win it for him okay. but either way he wasn't going to give it away he wasn't going to make bogey and uh, I thought that was really interesting and we probably grilled you about that afterwards and said where did you make the wrong decisions? Yeah, it was on the 12th fairway. I suppose that was the greatness of a guy like Watson and Nicholas in particular. Yeah. Jack often said, you know, he, you know, he played centre green on Sunday because he said a lot of the guys, the pressure and the tension and the bad decision making yeah. has happened in my case. Um, they make mistakes because these major champions are set up so difficult that you miss it the wrong side or you put it in the wrong place it's nearly impossible to, to scramble so Hoylake for example this week would it be playing much harder now in a major than it would normally if you play it normally if you play St Andrews or Muirfield or True normally oh yeah they set it up much tougher when they're playing this this championship and it is a tough course in any way I mean it's um, 7,400 7, yards long it's a very long uh, golf course and then when you put the difficulty in on top of it yeah you, you really have to miss the pin on the right side now some guys are making great up and downs I think as much as anything 
there's been quite a bit of rain and they've been able to do that but if if that was hard and fast it would be even more difficult absolutely uh, Rory McIlroy you know we're, we're hoping we'll have a charge here um, opening up with uh, two birdies in his first three holes a three under par seven shots behind Brian Harmon who's leading but John Ram is the man at the moment seven under with a par five to play in 18 now back in contention five under for the tournament with Tommy Fleetwood leaders tee off shortly Dermot you've covered so many opens for the I think it was the Irish Times first obviously now the Sunday Independent in recent years do you have favourite memories of Podrick is that the best memory um, yeah I suppose yeah Birkdale in 08 was wonderful I mean um, I uh, had a chat with one of the uh, press officials there and I was able to get up it being a Sunday when I wasn't working technically uh, it meant I could actually go out onto the golf course where most guys like to be sitting behind the machines watching the finish ready to do their reports for the following morning I, I was able to go out to the back of 18 and watch him finish and I remember talking to Bob Rotella and uh, Bob was a lovely man to talk to and very gentle uh, in his demeanour but um, was uh, just fascinated by Harrington he really he really thought the way Padraig handled himself in pressure situations was exemplary and funnily enough that's what we talked about that day I mean I, as far as I remember it the 18th was pretty straightforward I mean he hit it straight down the middle and a 5 iron I think was on and uh, two puts but by that stage I mean he had uh, he had buried the opposition effectively by uh, having his eagle on 17 but it was uh, it was so exciting uh, to watch an Irishman in that particular environment right up close I mean we didn't get that close I certainly didn't at Carnoustie the previous year and Carnoustie was messy anyway the way Podrick played the last I mean I had really seriously mixed emotions you know Jesus don't tell me he's going to throw it and uh, the idea of him hitting the ball twice into water uh, on 18 at Carnoustie uh, was just be was just something I didn't want to even consider then of course he does it and finishes up making probably one of the greatest sixes in the history of the championship but it was a very different situation John as you can imagine at Birkdale because uh, he was now comfortable he was going to win uh, he was retaining the title and uh, he was our man and we were seriously proud of him I remember that been a magical 20 years for Irish golf and Patrick started it the first Irish winner of a open since Fred Daly mm-hmm. at Hoylake in 1947 and then you had uh, Darren Clark you had Rory and you chain yeah, yeah, no, it's been a fantastic run. I mean, you're right, the last 20 years has been brilliant, culminating now in someone like Rory McIlroy, who has nine times been the number one player in the world. And uh, if he goes on a run today, I mean, he's still well in this tournament. Um, I'm not saying he's going to win, uh, because the leader looks very secure, and, and he's not like something out of the blue. This guy is a, is a hardened pro. I expect him to win the tournament now. Do you, but, Ryan Harmon, you expect him to yeah, finish it I off? Yeah, I do. I do because uh, really? I do because um, 
you know, he manipulates the ball beautifully. He's not a power hitter, but on a links course, you don't have to be. Yeah. If you're hitting it down the fairway, you're gaining 30 and 40 yards on the ground, which on the, the other championship courses, the other majors, I should say, that doesn't happen. So the power hitters have a distinct advantage, whereas this guy moves the ball left to right and right to left, hits the middle of the fairway, gets his extra 30 yards, and then the short game's impeccable. So yeah. unless he's something goes wrong today, I think he'll do it. What about the, what about the issue of nerves, though? This is a major championship. John Ram is 700. Like, you know, Rory might have it. Tommy Fleetwood, these are all... Yes. Does that the, not come into it? Well, it does, but I still... If you watch this guy's progress this year, I think he's been second two or three times. Right. Um, you know, he's beaten these guys head-to-head in world match play events. He's beaten Rory, actually, in one of the world match play events. And uh, I think he's got the stuff to do it. I really do. Are you so sure, Dermot, yes? Uh, I'm not sure at all. I mean, well, you can you can look back to uh, Todd Hamilton in 03, uh, I think is interesting. Not, not 03, no, 04. Yeah, 04. Uh, the previous year you had Ben, ben Curtis. Curtis. Yeah. Now, you look at those two guys and... Uh, Hamilton is, or sorry, uh, Harmon, Harmon is definitely in, in a class above what they were viewed at that time. But, uh, yeah, they did it, and you could reasonably ask yourself, well, why shouldn't Harmon do it uh, against a background like that? But, uh, you know, you think about... It's bound to put the fear of God into him, for instance, <laughs> to have Ram, of, of all people. Uh, because you know the sort of player Ram is he's not going to back off and he's going to if he's going for everything and um, gets the putter working uh, he's liable to do essentially what Harman did on Friday and shoot a 65 where is he now anyway so he's John? now 5 off the lead uh, 7 under par for the round and he's got the 18th which is a par 5 to play so he could get to 6 under by the time yeah. Harman he's off yes yeah, that would be interesting yeah yeah. I know what Dermot's saying he might, he might give him a scare alright but I think Harmon I mean look I'm I'm hoping Rory wins it yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but I think Harmon is tough enough uh, but today will be a big day for him today's the big test the third day is moving day and um, if he can consolidate his position now he could easily go out and have a poor day and and everything's up for grabs then and from the spectator's point of view I suppose that's what we'd love to see but I, I'm of the opinion that this guy's a hardened pro. This is his chance. Ideally, Des, uh, from your own experience as a pro, where do you think he would want to be? Now, I know he'd like to be leading, but where do you think he'd like to be going into tomorrow? I think if he's got a two-shot lead going into tomorrow, he'll be quite comfortable. He would be? Yeah, yeah. from what I've seen, I've, I've watched the last yeah. two days, he's hardly hit a shot out of place. Now, yeah. maybe I know it's happened before, uh, back and true, and the one I played well in, a guy went. Well, Bobby Clampett, yeah. Well, well done, John. You have a better memory than me. Yeah. Bobby Clampett went out and shot two amazing rounds. Yeah, yeah. And uh, seventy-eight, then I think. He, yeah, but he ran into all sorts of trouble in the third round and collapsed completely. So yeah. t- t- today's a big day for Harmon. If he if he can get it around yeah. and keep playing the way he has been, uh, it'll be interesting. Look, it's a fascinating thing. That's what we love about live sport. Uh, how has it changed? Uh, I'm sure, like it's now a big. Cor- 
corporate event, you even see that with the way they're picking the courses that they're going to, Dermish, like for example, Port Rush, they're not going back to Lytham for a while. But I'd say when you started off covering it 40 years ago, it was much more um, open, was it? The access to the players? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I keep thinking about that, John. You know, people would ask me, do I miss not going? I haven't been to the Open since Shane won in Port Rush in 2019. So that means, well, I've, this is the fourth year. Well, no, there was one missing. So I missed three. But um, it doesn't bother me, funnily enough, because um, it's just so hectic nowadays. It's such a, a scramble. First of all, to get into the place, and then you don't get anywhere near the players. I mean, I remember a time where I could wander up to Des at any point during the week. And, uh, you know, Des could have a couple of minutes. And, you know, that was, Des was always extremely helpful. But, I mean, even at that, it was just so much more relaxed. I mean, I remember, for instance, I have a great memory of the uh, 83 Open, believe it or not, at um, Birkdale. And Philip Walton had uh, finished as an amateur the previous Sunday, I think it was. Uh, he had played in the Shannon Scratch Cup and he went to, uh, I don't think he qualified for Birkdale, uh, but anyway, he, he was there on the Tuesday and um, Des made a point of going out to him on the 14th Green, I think it was, 14th Fairway, and made a point of going up to Philip and say, welcome to your professional career. I was it. That was Philip's debut, actually, okay. the Open in 83. And Des formally, well, it was a real Irish thing to do. It was typical Des, I might add. But uh, he would look to him on the fairway, the 14th fairway. I'll never forget it. And welcome to him to um, what was going to be the rest of his playing career, you know. But... Um, these are lovely things that I don't think could happen anymore because uh, because of the way, as you say, John, I mean, the way it's become so commercialised, and I can understand that too. We live in a different world. Uh, one of the things that really gets to me is um, this instant uh, information. You know, I mean, it, you go into a media conference and you wonder why a player would bother telling you anything as a media man for a simple reason that he knows it's going to be online in a couple of minutes. I mean, you you notice that the, the, the experienced reporters there this week or any open week, and very few of them will ask any questions because they don't want to bury themselves. I mean, you ask Rory something and all the world is going to know about it in five minutes. So the only chance you have is to get him in a quiet moment when he's leaving the media centre or when he's walking somewhere. You're never going to get into the practice ground to actually talk to him. Um, it's just so difficult. And he, in turn, is pressurised far more, in my view, than he need be because he understands where you're coming from. He understands you're trying to get something different from your colleagues. But he also knows, like, it's a pain the neck for him to be repeating stuff over and over but that's the way things have gone and um, I just don't like it um, 
I suppose. Yeah. Would Sevi have ever given you a, a bit here? Would you ever been able to chat to Sevi, for example, in the, when you're doing I opens? I mean, Sevi was amazing. I mean, I remember 1998 in Dubai, uh, the classic desert classic there. I remember Sevi coming up to me. He just saw me as a media man and said, "Will you join me for lunch?" And we were in and we sat down for lunch together. And the next thing, Patrick Harrington appears on the scene, and Harrington was he was only a newcomer, relative at that stage. And I said, to, I called Patrick, would you like to join Sevi and myself? You know, uh, Harrington like typical came over and said hello and uh, I think it was the first time he'd ever met Sevi <laughs> and uh, no no it wasn't because he would have met him at the Spanish Open the preview when he won uh, Spanish Open in, in 96 in, in Madrid yeah in Madrid yeah. but I mean it was still a bit special that can't happen anymore John you know I'm not saying it should happen, but I certainly appreciated it at the time. It was wonderful. Yeah, they weren't uh, cosseted away in, yeah. a, in a bubble. And actually, John, the, the, the Dermot had a very good relationship with Jack Nicholas too. Himself and Jack got on very well. Uh, and yeah, he we had did, many yeah. um, occasions that they got together for chats and stuff. Yeah, but it, it was very different. As I say, it was different from both perspectives. Uh, as you well know, John, I mean, you're, you're an experienced man here in the media. You know exactly what's happening uh, with modern technology and everything else. And it's just a different world. And, um, like, I mean, it's hard to believe it now. But in the 60s, Joe Carr talked to me about playing cards, playing poker with uh, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas during tournaments. And I said, would reporters be sitting in on these? I mean, talked about reporters playing with them as well. And he says, yeah, there was an understanding that if we talked casually and had a bit of a chat about something that they didn't want in the, in the paper or on radio or whatever, that uh, that was understood, you know. And Nicholas actually, I remember Nicholas saying recently is 15 years ago that uh, he was never let down in that regard you know that he made friends with a lot of journalists over the years uh, and that they never screwed him effectively uh, but it was just a different world I mean Padward Thomas Padward Thomas used to come over stay with Joe in Sutton in Joe's house and then get into Joe's Jaguar and go down to the west of Ireland to have a look at Ross's point when Joe was competing in the West of Ireland Championship and Warren Thomas would have been the preeminent golf writer of the time uh, working for the Guardian you know different yeah, European Tour must have been a, a completely different place when you played on it, and the caddies must have been good fun with the caddies. Yeah, there was, you're John. Kind of yeah. a, bit, a, a bit of kind of a, you're and, in the van. And, and even with the media, I remember Dermot and the late Colm Smith and, yeah. and John, John Redmond. And, well, you know, they asked the hard questions, we gave them the answers. But then when that was over and they they rolled their paper and went in and you'd did socialise business, with them. you'd meet them in for a yeah. beer later yeah. on and chit-chat, yeah. and you knew... There was going to be no spin. There's going to be no angles. If you talk family, if you talk friends, 
you knew you were in a comfortable environment. But when they were asking you the questions and the pads open, that's what they were writing about. You were on two Radical Cup teams, 79 and 81. So you were at the start, really, of the Radical Cup journey with Europe, weren't you? Yeah, I played on the first team in 79 yeah, yeah. in the Greenbrier in West Virginia. Yeah, I was, it was a thrill of a lifetime. It's funny, they, they talk about it in terms just been talking about the Open, how big it's gotten, how big it's grown. But, you know, for the players, it was never any different. When I played in that first team at 79, you know, the, the nerves were there, um, the tension, the occasion of being part of the team, trying to beat the Americans. That And I've been involved in recent years as a vice-captain. It's the same for the players. What's changed is the media game is enormous and um, the pressure and of course now the teams are closeted by the team captain the vice captain so to get to a player you've got to go through all that rigmarole as Dermot says so uh, yeah it was a look I really enjoyed it. I played uh, 79 and 81. In Walton in, Heath, yeah. In Walton Heath, yeah. So, so, so when you were then working with Paul McGinley or Ian Woosnam, were there things you did in the team room that helped you feel out there? Well, well as a build-up, you were a sounding board for your for your team captain. You know, the, all the, the things that were happening in the build-up. He'd be ringing you, and what do you think of this? What do you think of that? I'm talking to this player. What what should we be saying to that player um, but on the week it's such a busy you're given you're given little orders go and manage this take those two players out on the range um, see how they're playing I remember in Glen Eagles I was sent out with uh, Graham McDowell and the French player the young French player you'll, you'll do we uh, you're brilliant John I, I mean I spent two two days with these guys and I can't remember their names nothing else to do does yeah. yeah so you know I was sent out for three holes see how they get on I'm hoping Graham will take care of them and that's exactly what happened so I give my report to Paul uh, that evening I said they got on like a house on fire and, and he's says okay well I think we can manage this and we'll put them together and, and it turned out a treat uh, Dubuisson stepped up larger than he's, he'd ever been and played great and Graham was brilliant with them so they're the type of things you do as a vice captain because the captain has got a million things to be doing you got the sense though with Europe in the last since they came on the scene that they've almost they've been a more unified bunch of the Americans and at times when they maybe had inferior players that's been the difference uh, it has happened I think you, you have a point there it's, uh, our players definitely step up um, there is a camaraderie among them um, and they enjoy each other's company they spend more time with each other you see in Europe now things have changed again uh, with this you know so many of the players going to the PGA Tour and now with the new arrangements our top players can get a card onto the PGA Tour so they, they mightn't gel as well as they did in the past but um, they're still European and they're going to be playing for that team so you know once you put the, the colours on you're inclined to give it your, your all yeah, you, 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 that's the difference, isn't it, from Seve's time. Seve, it was just beating the Americans. He didn't care who they were. Once once you beat the Americans, it wasn't a question of winning for Europe or winning for his pals. Uh, whereas nowadays, it's more winning for Europe, isn't it? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, Seve had a bit of a thing, though, I, I think. Oh, it, it, it major, yeah, major. It wasn't thing. normal. <laughs> he just... Uh, no, but it yeah. worked for him. You know, he needed, he needed something to drive him yeah. and uh, he developed not only an antipathy 
towards Americans. Uh, it was a downright hatred of them. Yeah. You know that uh, um, there were. He talked about the American team. There were ten nice guys, eleven nice guys on Paul Azinger. Uh, he hated he, he hated Azinger because they had such wonderful personal rivalry. Uh, but it was a motivational thing for him, mm. uh, Des. Now, you knew Seve very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I wouldn't say there was any badness in him, but, I mean, he was a serious competitor. Oh, fierce, fierce, yeah. I think he just wanted to win. I think yeah. that was his motivating. He was a winner. and uh, he, would, he would have spent a lot of days with these players in the 80s because uh, it was the... Faldo, uh, Woosnam, Lyle—they all won majors. Seve then, but Seve was the trailblazer. Seve, Seve was the was the man, wasn't he? Really, like put European golf on the map. Oh, absolutely. I I think you can you can compare him to what Arnold Palmer did for yeah. golf in America. That's what Seve did for golf in Europe, and to a lesser extent, I suppose Tony Jacklin did it for the UK. Yeah, yeah. They they, they were trailblazers. I mean, Tony won a a, a, a U.S. Open and a, and a British Open when when nobody in the UK was winning that sort of event uh, and then Seve comes along for Europe and he starts winning but Seve won an unbelievable amount of tournaments I think he won up in the 80s oh yeah I mean he, it, he was just a born winner I mean that's what he did and it's 39 years to the day since he won at St Andrews in a really so there you go with the, with, with the moment of his career with the with the fist pump and the yes I remember talking to Michael Banalik and I asked him what was his favourite Michael as you know was secondary of the RNA and was then captain of the RNA and what was his favourite open and why and uh, that was the one he picked he said 84 St Andrews he said it was just so wonderful in every respect that um, that Seve won his mother was actually in the RNA clubhouse at the time and Bonalik was probably looking after her making sure that uh, she would have been fairly fairly elderly at the time, but I mean that she would have been properly looked after. But he talked, Benali talked about the 18th, and first of all, the weather was wonderful. Yes. It was glorious sunshine. And Sevi then sinking the nine-footer on the 18th for what proved to be the winning party and uh, the fist pump. It was a great fist pump. And uh, it was just magical. I mean, you... You couldn't make it up. You couldn't cre- recreate something like that with any other player because it was the very presence of the man. He was a born star. Uh, you know, we talk about Hollywood uh, having star quality in Hollywood. Semi had that in space, really. But I remember that distinctly and um, as an open, as a very memorable open. And Watson blamed uh, overshooting the 17th with a two-iron. He said it was the wrong club. He should have hit a three. A three, and he remember he went up against the wall. Made a very good five, actually, as it happened. But I always felt that the mistake was was, was the 12th. He pulled his tee shot at 12 into the winds and made five on a hole where everybody was making three. Yeah. As you would know, Des, mm-hmm. you'd expect to make three on the 12th. And uh, he he overlooked that a bit gently, uh, yeah. but, um, and uh, he and talked about his putting. And he, ne- he never won another major. 
Oh, there you go. So we've got to take a break. We've got uh, Desmith and Dermot Gleese on golf, and Nathan Murphy will also join us as we talk about the Open and the great game of golf after this. Off the ball. This is News Talk. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Logan with you through to five. We're continuing our golf chat this week as the Open continues over in Liverpool. The Saturday panel brought to you this week with thanks to the all new Renault Austral e Tech full hybrid with 200 horsepower and up to 1,100 kilometre range. Delighted to have in studio the eight time European Tour winner and former Open player, Des Smith, and the golf rider with the Sunday Independent Dermot Gleese. Also on the line, Golf Weekly presenter Nathan Murphy. Nathan, how are you? Afternoon, John. This is something else from John Ram. 63 from John Ram. Rory started well. He's four under par. Brian Harmon leading on 10, but the pack is closing. It sure is. I think everybody was a little bit deflated yesterday evening with a sense that maybe Brian Harmon was just going to run away with this over the weekend. And when we get our usual Sunday afternoon open championship drama, maybe we could all just relax and watch the golf because Brian Harmon would be so far clear. But John Ram started the day 12 shots behind Brian Harmon. Just as Harmon was about to tee off in the last couple of minutes, Ram hold about a 12-footer for birdie on 18 for a round of 63. Do you remember the last 63 in an Open Championship? I remember the 62, Brandon Grace, but uh, 63, was it, was 63. it Shane, Shane on day three? Shane Lowry on the Saturday up in Port Rush. Exactly that. And we all know the momentum he brought and into the Sunday and what happened there. Like This is John Ram. This is what he does. He is such a brilliant momentum player. And he won the Masters and he's been a little bit flat and I think he's been a bit peeved with almost a reaction to his flatness over the last few months John that's he's always angry a question mark <laughs> well he, he, he is but he listen he uses this and he was angry last night his interview I thought was fascinating his frustration uh, playing with Rory yesterday that there was uh, too many too many people following him around basically and they were getting in his way and everyone was crowding around Rory and he was almost being squeezed out in the background the cameramen and the sound operators with their boom mics they were around Rory when they were off off 18 and they basically ignored him and uh, he wasn't too happy about that either but he's used it as ever in the right way and I watched the first four or five holes of his round and there wasn't much happening like he went miles left off the tee in the first and he scrambled to his par and sort of ticking along on two over but the flow of this week is when you get hot, get hot. And all of those guys at the top of the leaderboard have had a run of holes where they've been able to string off birdies quickly. And that's what Ram did today. 9, 10, 11, 12. Suddenly you start thinking, hmm, if if Harmon comes back, maybe Ram can get there. And then he was just sensational over the last four holes. Birdie 15, 16, 18. Gave himself a chance on the par 3, 17. Just left it short from about 20 feet. So he's within four of the lead. Now, the scoring, scoring's far more uh, straightforward than anyone expected. I think the feeling last night was that there would be very heavy rain and the wind might pick up a bit. There's barely a drop of rain out there at the moment, barely a breath of wind. Very, very scoreable conditions. It does mean that people will be able to put pressure on Brian Harmon, and he's had, what, 26 hours since he finished up yesterday to think about this. A man without a victory, even on the PGA Tour, in six years. But it's not playing anywhere near as difficult as people thought today. So can he just keep it steady, bring himself a three, four shot lead into tomorrow? But the great thing about this course is that calamity is just around the corner, it feels. And even watching, look at Tyrrell Hatton yesterday on 18th. Like he was putting together an unbelievable back nine, three off the tee. Uh, and that will, I'm sure, be on the back of Brian Harmon's mind over the next few hours. But from where we were last night to where we are now with John Ram within four of the lead Jason Day within five of the lead and Tommy Fleetwood the home favourite within five of the lead as well and McElroy like McElroy he is three under for his round after five holes he could easily have birdied all five of them maybe he should have birdied all five of them uh, you know he had birdie putts from eight nine feet on both 
two and four and he missed them and he's just in there holding is that another birdie put no it's from a par Nathan par it's a par so he saved par there but as I say those first five holes all birdie but birdie three of them he's on four under par he's six shots back so you know, you've uh, yeah, two vastly experienced experts in the studio with you. I'm sure they've seen all of this before uh, with what can happen to Brian Harmon. It's still very much in his hands, but look at the quality. If you took him out of it, this is a sensational leaderboard. Absolutely. Uh, but if Rory doesn't win, Des, it'll be 10 years next year. Jack Nicholas, who uh, Dermot was speaking about there earlier, has spoken about it being a mystery. Why do you think it's it's been so long since Rory won a major? It's, yeah, it's hard to fathom a player of that class. I mean, he is a world-class player. He's, he's, we know how good he is. Uh, he, he's always had a bit of an issue with his putting. His putting it comes and goes. He's not. Uh, his putting doesn't complement his game. Um, I think it's been a bit of a mental thing as well. You know, he, he it came to a stop. He struggled for a few years, went backwards for a while again came back to number one you know he won a few FedEx Cups which is the order of merit and a winning order of merit is the most difficult thing of all but you see with majors they're only four a year and you have to peak that week so I still expect him to win a few more but uh, he's finding it a little difficult right now Do you you not think that the problem was created by winning at Hoylake in 14 in that I mean he said it himself at the time now he says I can look to winning the career Grand Slam Mm. the career Grand Slam at that point became the major major thing in his life I believe and he chased it rather than simply looking to the next event that's a very fair point And and of course And I think he allowed this career Grand Slam to dominate. Mm. Uh, Now, it didn't bother him, as you've just said, in the FedEx Cup or various other tournaments. We saw him in Scotland last week. I mean, it was a magnificent finish by any standards. And I I don't care that it was the Scottish Open as opposed to the Open. It was still a hell of a performance. But I think that, and you're right, it's, it's mental. I think that when he when he uh, gets into a major, that all he can think about, even though it's not relevant, I mean, winning the PGA is no longer relevant to him, shouldn't be. The Masters is, but he, he seems to allow that dominate his entire thinking. Yeah, you have a fair point, because uh, as, a, as a player and as an Irishman, I want him to win the Masters. Of course you do, yeah. We, yeah you know, I don't know, are there any Europeans uh, in, that, uh, in that elite club? No. No. So he could become the first European and uh, being Irish even better. It's a very elite club. There's only five players yeah. ever in the history of the game to have won the four majors. Yeah. Now, I know Nicholas and, and Tiger have won it a, f- a few times each, but they were the all-time greats. But I'd love to see Rory join that. that Do you think uh, he's closer, Dermot? Do you think he's closer, given the way he's been playing, winning both tours last year, second at the US Open? Do you think he's closer to getting over the line and majors? Well, with respect, John, it's impossible for us to measure how close he might be because it's essentially a mental thing. You could make some judgments if you are watching him actually playing and saying, well, now that he's sorted that, aspect of his game he's now that much closer to winning I mean we said all he needed to do 
do was get his wedge distances yeah, right, yeah. and he was going to be grand. I mean, we saw him at the US Open. For God's sake, I mean, people said it was his putting. It wasn't his putting. He wasn't getting the ball close enough to the hole to give himself reasonable chances. And at the end, he was depending on Wyndham Clark to fold. Now, a fellow with Rory's pedigree, depending on, effectively, as he was then, a journeyman like Wyndham Clark to fold over the last few holes so that he can win it. I mean, that's not what I expect. Nathan, where are you on all of this, on Rory? It's definitely got better over the last few years. In that initial period after Hoylake in 2014, he didn't even contend. And the lads have outlined some of the problems. Every year there seemed to be a, he started slowly. Then there was a problem with his putting. Then there was a problem with his wedges. He had a Friday problem at one stage where he couldn't back up a good opening round and never got himself into contention. Whereas you look at the last 18 months since that brilliant final round, the year Scheffler won the Masters, when he holed out from the bunker on 18, he's given himself chances. But... Say that injuries last year seemed to have a huge impact on him, and mentally, that was a bad day at the office. He got that one badly wrong. He seemed to think that conservative golf would do it for him, and wasn't able to react quickly enough when uh, Cam Smith came through like a train. Again, his wages that day, he missed a lot of putts, but he left himself too much to do. And likewise, Wyndham Clark, you sort of again, we're all sitting there that Sunday night, just waiting for Wyndham Clark to fold, and it never happened. But I would agree with Dermot. I think this idea of the career Grand Slam got into his head so quickly. We all just sort of assumed, leaving Hoylake in 2014, that Rory would go on and become the greatest European player of all time. And I know greatness isn't just on a number, and no matter what he does, maybe he'll never be a greater impact on golf than Seve Ballesteros. But I thought, I think we all thought he'd he'd get past Faldo. He'd get past six, and numbers-wise, he'd have more Grand Slams than any other European. But his entire year revolves around the Masters and the new schedule probably doesn't help him either because this, this is another year gone. We've sort of spoken endlessly day on day. Rory's been front and centre on the news front around live golf, uh, around his own game, around his form, around the Masters. But the four majors happened in four months now and now it's done. And now we've got another seven, eight months building up to Rory at the Masters and the mental strain that all that puts on him. And, and after this weekend, it's, there's a lot of important golf. There's a lot of money to be made. There's you know literally hundreds of millions of dollars at stake on the FedEx Cup. There's a Ryder Cup to come. But for Rory, it still feels that there's almost too much on the Masters. Just go and win a PGA. Yeah, win, win something to just to just get back flowing, contending a Masters. And listen, he's certainly not out of contention. He's, he could be bang there at the end of the day. Carbon bogey, the first nation. So we're back to a three-shot lead for Brian Harmon. And you look at that leaderboard, there's a lot of birdies out there in those opening holes. Nikolai Hoygaard started very, very well. We obviously saw um, what McElroy's been able to do as well. So uh, if you said to Roy McElroy, start of the week, you're six holes into your third round, you're within five shots of the lead, and that lead's held by Brian Harmon, you probably would have taken it. <laughs> the other oh. Irish player to make the cut was Paul Harrington, uh, nearly 52 years of age, Daz, and... What a national treasure this man is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's brilliant. I mean, he's, he's been performing unbelievably in America on the Champions Tour. And then when he ever, whenever he steps over to the Junior Tour as such, he still performs. And they're now talking about him as a, an outside possibility of a, a Ryder Cup selection. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. I wouldn't put anything past him. You know, the guy is a, is a, is a national treasure and he's a great player. And uh, I don't think uh, anyone would be disappointed if he happened to make that team. 
Yes, because um, I think it was 2010 in the build-up to the Ryder Cup at uh, Celtic Manor. Uh, Darren Clark was the early show opener and uh, Langer was playing unbelievably well as he has been doing every year on the seniors tour and I just had this feeling like that compared to some of the Europeans at the time I mean he was certainly worth considering uh, for a place in the team anyway I, I put that to Darren Clark at a press conference at the Irish Open I'll never forget his response he said have you been drinking <laughs> so <laughs> Darren just thought it was totally off the wall off the wall yeah the idea of a senior there is a reaction like that but if you're in there I mean and you're watching the way some of these players are performing yeah uh, especially at the, at the back end maybe you're, you're 10, 11 and 12 and then you switch over and you see a langer at the time yeah. and you're watching his performances and then he plays in the Masters and he runs in the top five and you think wow this guy is still playing unbelievable golf and the same thing is happening Porrick. with Porrick I mean he shot an unbelievable finish to win a tournament in New York State recently I think he was 7 under for his last That's right. 9 holes it was holes. ridiculous yeah. Yeah. And the Scottish Open a great couple of rounds last week great couple year. of rounds he's made the cut here you look yeah. at the players who've missed can the cut he here does. can he putt yeah, well, no, no, I know he can put them, but, but you know the Ryder Cup better than anybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a serious, tight situation yeah. with uh, with the trophy at stake, uh, could you put money on Patrick to Well, to personally, I, I would. I mean, would. just going back on his career... I mean, when you see those eyes light up and he gets into a into a pressure situation, old, yeah. the last guy you want to have hanging around you is Parry Carrington. Yeah. You know, he always made it difficult. I'd love to think you're right, but he always made the putt. Well, that'd be my belief. I I wouldn't be afraid. Yeah, yeah. Is this realistic, Nathan? Is this a conversation? Oh, I, I'm glad I'm not in the studio because Des would probably give me a smack around the head. But <laughs> it is seniors golf that Potter Carrington is playing and competing very well in. And everyone got very excited with those first couple of rounds last week at the Scottish Open. He ended up finishing where? 49th? Yeah, he backed so, up a little, but he, st he still performed at that level against the best players in the world. He's he's made the cut here. I don't know what he's doing today. He's plus five. Plus five. Yeah. yeah. The length yeah. of the course I, will probably get to him over a 72-hole run. But... I mean, I think his capabilities are still there. It's an outsider, I'm not denying it. I, this this obviously wouldn't even be a conversation if it wasn't for Liv because if we were looking at wild cards Garcia uh, would be in the mix Poulter Westwood would probably be in the mix but they're obviously not going to be there today's a big day for the Ryder Cup because you look at Sepp Straka and Nikolai Hjoigar contending yeah. those two can probably seal their places on the team if they can keep this momentum going over the weekend but like, there is a lack of depth in that European team there's a magic to what Potter Carrington can, can do and the way and the distance he's hitting the ball watching him in some of those seniors event it looks as though he's about to put his back yeah, out well that's the like only reason why I feel he might be because he hasn't lost his length he's still bombing it out there at about 310 or 320 not, not many senior players can do that the Open Championship Round 3 Brian Harmon 9 under par through the first hole so he's bogeyed his first hole only got a 3 shot lead now and John Ram with a 63 in the major <laughs> Jason Day of Australia on the comeback trail 5 under par with Tommy Fleet with also 5 under par Rory McIlroy 4 under 3 6 3 under for his round today only 5 off the lead with Cameron Young also on that mark Sepp Straka of Austria as Nathan mentioned Alex Fitzpatrick 
Matt Fitzpatrick's brother, three under par. Victor <laughs> Hovland, three under. Nikolai Hoygaard, three under. Jordan Speed, three under. Uh, Shabankar Sharma, three under par. There's a few twists and turns yet, Dermot, between this uh, and the end of tomorrow. There's an interesting player now, Victor Hovland. Um, I was just looking back to 06 at Hoylake. And, uh, you know, if you ask nowadays, who is the first Norwegian player likely to win a major? And, uh, you know, you wouldn't even think about it. It'd have to be Hovland. Yes, in um, 2006, Thorpe, Marius Thorpe, who was a Norwegian, won the amateur medal in the Open that year. Uh, He turned pro had a niffy sort of a couple of years on tour and packed it in in 2011. But he's there, funnily enough, this week, looking at Hovland as a, as a commentator with Norwegian television. And uh, he's also involved in management, golf management in Norway. So it's amazing, like, you think you have everybody pigeonholed. Yes. You know, and Marius Thorpe, I remember him well from that time. He was European amateur champion, actually, at the time. That's how he got into the Open. And, um, you know, as I said, if you were putting money on the first Norwegian to really make it big in golf, it would have been him. Yeah. But even you were pretty confident about Brian Harmon earlier in the conversation. You know, it's, 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 no, no. it's a long way now, to go. John, yeah, now, no, John. I don't, John, I <laughs> now, don't panic now. that easy. No, he's don't a mind tough him. Pro. I, I, he's I, been I, mischievous. I'm sticking to my guns. <laughs> I did say, though, that, that today's the big day. <laughs> he, he can manage. You guys get scared too easy by these big yeah. players. Yeah, well, well, well I tell you now. You're the only person in this conversation, Des, who actually played the game and barely won the Open. You know? <laughs> if, Harmon, if Harmon could. Could buy a two shot lead going into tomorrow at this stage. Would he have it? I, that's what I said. If he was two shots, he'd be quite happy. Uh, but I, you could better no. believe. I it. still have confidence that he'll he'll get his way around there today. Nathan, we got a couple of minutes left. How do you see this going? Yeah, well, Harmon settled it there with a par at the second. I think this morning it was fifty fifty between Harmon and the field. Already, you would probably back the field if you had yeah. a choice between the two of them. Um, it's such a stacked leaderboard behind Ram, Day, Fleetwood, McElroy. Cam Young yeah, is one of the best players the without a major right now. Uh, I saw Fitzpatrick and I assumed it was Matt Fitzpatrick, so that's sensational from uh, his brother who was the first man onto the green when Matt Fitzpatrick won the US Open to celebrate with him last year. Right now I would go with the field and I think it'll be very tight. Uh, like John Ram was red hot with the putter today. Yeah, that was um, a fantastic yeah. round of Rams. But I think what's come in the favour of the field though is that the fact that there's no wind has allowed the guys to attack yeah, the yeah, course. Yeah. I mean, the forecast was for wind and I felt Harmon would be fine. But it's gone flat camp. They've had the rain. Too. So it means that the, 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 the aggressive players like the Rorys and the Rams and all those, they can now press the button. And Tommy Fleetwood's gone to six under par. Dermot just whispered Tommy Fleetwood, so I don't know if that was a prediction. I know, it looks like it's going to be... We're nearly run out of time I wouldn't put bad money on Tommy. I wouldn't put bad money on Tommy. Nathan, where's your money going? I like oh, Tommy. Yeah. I really like him as a player. I know that's you've got the street fighter and John Ram and the world's nicest man, Tommy Fleetwood. Um, maybe even playing together tomorrow. I'd love to see Fleetwood do it if it's not Rory. I'm going to go for Rory. Nathan th- from Golf Weekly, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Des Smith and Dermot Gleese, love the, love the chat. Appreciate you coming in. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much, John.